0: Thank you, Ricky, for that ministry of music. Perhaps three of the greatest words in the English language are, it is finished. It's wonderful to know that you have finished a task. Perhaps that big term paper that's due just before the semester is over and you can finally say, It is finished. Or that miserable day at work and you're just looking at the clock, can't wait until the uh, clock reaches the, the hand where you are finally able to go home from work. Or a long, agonizing marathon in which you are struggling to come to the end and finally you're able to say, it is finished. The greater the task, the more the reward in being able to say it is finished. It's wonderful when that tour of duty in the military service is finished. High school, college, or graduate school's study is finished. Maybe you've been Working, dreaming, striving to build a house. And finally, finally, it's finished. Can you imagine the joy of Noah when he could finally say, after years and years, it's finished. That ark has finally been built. The greater the task, the greater the joy in being able to say it is finished. Conversely, there's a lot of sorrow and, and heartache that goes along with not finishing. That paper that is due, if not completed on time, can end up with a pretty bad grade. That long and miserable day at work, and suddenly your boss comes in and says, I'd like you to work overtime. You prepare hard for a marathon. You train. You expend a lot of energy you're ready for this race halfway through it you turn your ankle and you have to drop out and you can't finish maybe that house that uh, you wanted to build I remember as a child on my bus route there was a very unusual house For there was a house that really was nothing more than a basement it was a basement with uh, cinder blocks, you know, coming out of the ground. And, and you can see the little basement windows. And then it was just finished off. There wasn't a main entrance. There wasn't a first story or a second story of the house. It, it was just a, a slab of cement on the top and a rubberized roof. For some reason, this house was never completed. But... A family lived in it. I didn't know the family. I would see the very, very young children, two, three years old, outside of this basement playing. And we on the bus used to call them the basement people. uh, Because uh, nobody knew who they were, but uh, they were the basement people. That doesn't even sound good. I wouldn't want to be a basement person myself. But they never finished the house. I don't know why. I don't know what happened. They ran out of money or time or... uh, health or strength but they never finished the greatest words that are uttered in the word of God is for Jesus to say it is finished because there was no greater task that mankind was ever given than the task that was laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be the savior of all those that would believe in him this morning we're going to consider Christ's statement it is finished As we think about this passage that is before us, one of the ways that it is helpful for us, I think, to focus our attention is to think about the elements that are present in the narrative of the book of John that aren't present in the Synoptic Gospels. One of the most useful tools that you can have in studying the Gospels is what is referred to as a harmony of the Gospels. The Harmony of the Gospels is a book that will lay out for you in parallel columns the events that are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And uh, you can see what is in Matthew and you can see the parallel account in Mark and the parallel account in Luke and in John and it harmonizes those books. And one of the most useful elements is to think about what is found in one narrative that is not found in another narrative. For example, the most important elements in Mark that are not found in John. John's narrative of the crucifixion is actually quite succinct. It's uh, very brief. A lot of details about the crucifixion are omitted in the Gospel of John and some of them we might even be surprised that are omitted. For example, the things that are found in Mark that are not found in John are the mocking of Jesus by the passerbys and the chief priests and scribes, the darkness that comes over the land, the cry of desolation, the tearing of the curtain in the temple, the centurion's confession that this is the Christ, Luke adds a few things, such as the weeping of the women on the way to Golgotha, the prayer that Jesus offers for his enemies, the conversation of the two crucified with Jesus, and the repentance of one. You'd think that that would be something that that all the narratives would include. Uh, The repentant thief on the cross. John mentions nothing of it. The mourning of the crowd standing by. But John... Has some special features that no other gospel contains. And they're all in the passage that's before us. What is unique to John is the inscription on the cross that this is the king of the Jews and the controversy it caused, the scripture quotations and saying these are fulfilled. The care of Jesus for his mother, verses 25 and 27. And then lastly, his final cry from the cross, the seventh word. It is finished. It is finished. Only the Gospel of John refers to that final cry of Jesus. It is finished. It is finished. And so as we think about the Gospel of John, it becomes pretty clear to me what should be the focal point of the passage that is set before us, and that is namely Jesus finishing the work that God had given him to do. The key verses are verses 28 and verse 30 of chapter 19. Those verse 28. After, the, the, after this, Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished. The word for accomplished is the same Greek word that's found in verse 30, finished. All things had already been finished. In order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. And then verse 30. When Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What we want to focus on this morning is what we're to learn from the thought that Jesus accomplished or finished his work. What are we to understand by that phrase? What did Jesus mean when he uttered those words? Well, first, the accomplishing the work of God was a series of deliberate choices on the part of Jesus. Let me say it again. The accomplishing the work of God was a series... Of deliberate choices on the part of Jesus. Notice verse 28. Jesus was very much aware of the precise work that he was to do. And verse 28 says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished or or finished. Knowing that all things had already been accomplished or finished. Jesus was very much aware of everything that he was to do. Of all that the scriptures foretold. Of everything that God the Father wanted of him. He knew it all. And he was sure in his mind when it came time to die that it was all completed. Jesus made a conscious choice to fulfill the will of God. Notice verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. There was one last prophecy of the word of God to be fulfilled. That is that he had to drink this sour wine. There's no prophecy that says that he must say, I am thirsty. He says, I am thirsty in order to fulfill the prophecy, in order to bring it about. In order that it would be accomplished. He says I am thirsty. So that they give him the wine to drink. That's the prophecy that's fulfilled. He deliberately. Deliberately. Intentionally. Fulfilled that prophecy. Jesus. Throughout his life. The entirety of his life. Made conscious choices. In order to accomplish the work that God had given him to do. This is a main theme that travels through the book of John. Therefore, it doesn't surprise me that John is the only one that records these words. It is finished, for John focuses on this work of God that has to be done. Now, do a quick walk with me through John. John chapter 4, verse 34. Uh, Jesus just begins his public ministry. Jesus is with the woman at the well. Uh, They come back after having been sent out, that is the disciples, in order to buy some food. And uh, Jesus is talking with this woman at the well, and the, the disciples are, ama- are amazed. John four thirty four, Jesus said to him, My food is through the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. To finish his work. Same word that's found in our text in John chapter 19. Jesus said from the very beginning of his ministry, This is my work. This is my food. This is what I'm about. In order to accomplish, fulfill the work of God. Turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 36. John five, 36. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do. These works that God has given me to accomplish or finish, same word. In the works that I do. That's what I'm about. That's what I do. What God has given me to do, I do, Jesus said. Then in John chapter 17, verse 4, the high priestly prayer. Jesus said, I've glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished, finished the work which thou hast given to me to do. And so we read in John chapter 19, that just before Jesus dies, he says, it is finished. It is finished. Finished. As we think about the work of God in the purpose, in the person of Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus fulfilled God's purpose in sending him to this earth. It was fulfilled. In one sense, salvation was accomplished. By the one act of Jesus dying on the cross. That was crucial. That was central to the plan of God in sending his son. Jesus had to die on the cross. That one act of giving up his spirit is the basis of our salvation. In Romans, you don't need to turn there, but listen to these words. Romans 5.15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, referring to Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought unto justification. There is a comparison that's made between Adam and Adam and, Jesus. and in one act, death came upon all who were united to Adam. All of the posterity of Adam died because of one act. And we know what that one act is. It was the one act of eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because God said, The day that thou eatest of, thou shalt surely die. In that one act, in that one act of disobedience, sin came upon mankind. In like manner, in the one act of Jesus dying upon the cross, salvation came to all that would be united to Jesus Christ. One act brings death. One act brings eternal life. But, That one act of righteousness, of Jesus dying on the cross, was predicated or built upon a life of righteousness on the part of Jesus. So, in one sense, it is right to say that we are saved through the one act of Jesus Christ. But, in order for Jesus Christ to be the Savior, it required many acts of righteousness. Now, let me unpack this for you, which is our second thought. The second thing that we learned is that the work of Jesus was many-faceted. Many-faceted. Look at John 19, 28. After this, Jesus knowing, all things were now accomplished. I'm looking at the word things. And notice that it's in the plural. All the things were accomplished accomplished all the things without failure so rather than look at each one because we couldn't exhaust it this morning I've lumped them into three categories what are the kinds of things that Jesus is talking about when he said all things were accomplished what is included in that well first it includes the work of Jesus Of bearing witness to the world that he is the king of the Jews. He had come to be a witness. He had come to be a light. He had come in order to reveal the person and character of God. And he was born to be revealed that he was the Messiah. He was the promised savior and king. That was to come into this world. Remember at his birth the Magi come. And they told Herod that we have come to worship the King of the Jews. So, from his infancy, Jesus had the responsibility of proclaiming the kingdom and of revealing himself as the King of the Jews. That work is consummated and climaxed at the cross. So notice verses 19, excuse me, John 19, 16 and following. So then he delivered him, that is Jesus, to them to be crucified. Nothing mentioned about how that's done, nothing about nailing him to the cross or any of those things. They took Jesus therefore and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him with two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. And Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, this inscription many of the Jews read for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew and Latin And in Greek. It was written in the languages of the world. Hebrew for the most devout Jews. Latin for all the Romans. And Greek for the rest of the world. And that day, that covered just about all the known languages of the time. It was proclaimed so that anyone who had the ability to read. Anyone who was literate would see above the head of Jesus that this is the king of the Jews. No matter what nation you came from, no matter what principality you had lived in, and remember that they're coming from all over the face of the earth in order to worship at the Passover. And whatever you spoke, wherever you lived, you may have had your own personal dialect, but you would have known the, one of these three languages. And Jesus is proclaimed king of the Jews. The witness was complete. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. That does not mean every single man. It means people from all over the world. If I be lifted up, I will draw people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, all over the world. And this was fulfilled in the inscription written in Latin and Greek and Hebrew. Included in the work of Jesus being finished was his own personal, faithful fulfillment to all the law of God. We know that Jesus lived a sinless life. We know that he was without sin. In order to be without sin, it required two things. First, it means that he did not transgress any of the laws of God. Which means he did not actively sin. He did not do anything that he should not do. He was sinless. The second element of being sinless is that he faithfully did everything God would have him to do. He was obedient in all things. He was not negligent. He did not fail in any area to accomplish what God would require of him. In order to be the sinless Lamb of God that hung upon the cross, it meant that he had to be sinless. In order for that death on the cross to mean something... Jesus himself had to be without sin. And in this passage, we have the final uh, manifestation of Jesus' fulfilling all of the law of God. One of the Ten Commandments that I spoke on just before I left on vacation for Mother's Day was, Honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God gives thee. In the book of Timothy it says, If any man provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. The word of God says, if you don't care for your own parents, you're worse than a non-believer. You're worse than a heathen. Heathens will care for their parents. And if you fail to care for your parents, you... Act worse than a non-believer does. Jesus had to care for his parents. And he did care for his parents. Not simply because he had to, he wanted to. He wanted to fulfill the law of God. So notice with me John chapter 19, verse... 26. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. You know... As you read that, it seems like it comes almost out of the blue. It almost is an afterthought. But it's near and dear to the heart of John because this is this disciple that he's talking about. It's the writer of this book that is going to take Mary into his own home and provide for her for the rest of his life. But it's more than that. It's Jesus fulfilling every aspect of the law of God. It's Jesus personally living out the righteousness that the law requires. Notice verse 28. After this Jesus knowing all things had been accomplished. After this. It's it's interesting that it doesn't say after these. But it says after this as though that is the, the final culmination. It's Jesus had, had done all the other things. He'd done all the other works. He had Done everything that had to be done, but but there was this one last detail that had to be fulfilled, and that is that his mother had to be cared for after he died. And he didn't let it go undone. He didn't let it go unfinished. He didn't let everything else that was important preoccupy his time. But he said, woman, here is your son, son, here is your mother as a way of providing and caring for her in the future after his death. The third aspect that is included in the work of Jesus was the adherence to the word of God. In order to be, fu- be finished, all the prophecies of the word of God have to be fulfilled. Some of these prophecies Jesus orchestrated, and some he did not. One of the prophecies that he did not orchestrate was that of the soldiers casting lot for his clothes. Look at verse twenty three Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments, made four parts a part to every soldier, and also the tuning now the tunic was Seamless, woven in one piece, so they had said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture, They divided my outer garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. This was in order to fulfill a prophecy. Jesus did not orchestrate that. Jesus did not do anything to make that happen. It was a prophecy based on the realities of the crucifixion. And that is that there were four soldiers that would have been responsible for the ultimate crucifixion of Jesus. That's the way it was done in the Roman army. There were five pieces and articles to his clothing. So they divided up four of them, passed them out, but the fifth The tunic, they decided to gamble for. Because they didn't want to rip it into four sections. And this was customary. This is what they would do. This is how they would handle the situation. What is unique, of course, is that the Old Testament prophesies that truth, that reality. And what's so unique about that is, it's totally foreign to the Old Testament. There was no way for that to be known, except that it would be revealed by... God himself. The psalmist had no first-hand knowledge of a crucifixion. That's not the way in which Jewish people put people to death. The Jews put people to death by stoning. Nobody in the time of David put somebody to death by means of crucifixion. That was a Roman novelty. That was unique to them. We're talking centuries later and yet the word of God is prophesying about these soldiers that are casting lots talking about the way in which Jesus is going to die. Simple foreknowledge of events that will come to pass. Pretty amazing. But there are the events that Jesus himself orchestrated. And one of them is given to us in verse 28. Verse 28, after this, knowing that all things had been accomplished in order that the scripture might be fulfilled or completed, said, I am thirsty. Again, it's not the words, I am thirsty that we're looking at. It's the motivation. Why did he say I am thirsty? Verse 29. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they, that is the soldiers, put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. That is the last prophecy that had to be fulfilled. It is the fulfillment of Psalm sixty-nine, twenty-one. They also gave me gall for my food and for my first thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. For my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Now, just to harmonize the Gospels with you, sour wine is a cheap wine that soldiers use to quench their thirst. It was different from the wine that was mixed with myrrh that had been offered to Jesus previously. In Mark 15, 23... It says, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. That wine mixed with myrrh would have acted like a sedative. It was a way of trying to ease the pain. It was the one merciful thing that the Romans did in all the crucifixion. You know They're, they're kind of a strange group. They did everything they could to make the crucifixion as painful as it could be with the scourging, with the carrying of the cross, with the nailing of the person, with the mockery. They made it as miserable as they could make it. But in the one shred of human decency, they did have this vinegar mixed with myrrh that would take the edge off of the pain. And when it seemed as though the person could take it no longer, and some people think it wasn't actually... Merciful at all but they were trying to prolong the agony I don't know but the, the aspect was that they would give them this vinegar to drink to take away some of the pain Jesus refused that he wouldn't drink that but now it's the end now he's ready to die and there is one single prophecy of the word of God that has not yet been fulfilled and Jesus consciously orchestrates what's taking place in order for that to be fulfilled. He had to drink this sour wine. And he does. Thirdly, thirdly, the third thing that we learn is that Jesus accomplished the work of saving a people. The great work that Jesus had to do was to save a people. John 17, 1, 2, and 3 says this. These things Jesus spoke, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come, thy son, that thy son may glorify thee, even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. So in John chapter 19, verse 30, when Jesus had received his sour wine, he said, it is finished. Ultimately, The it refers to the purpose and plan of God for Jesus' life. The purpose, will, plan of God for Jesus' life is finished. What is the purpose and plan and will of God for Jesus' life? answer is to save a people. That's why he came to into this world john 3:16. for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but everlasting life for god sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but the world through him might be saved galatians 4 4 and 5 when the fullness of time was come god sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons god sent his son to save a people God sent His Son to save a people. In order for that to be done, it was many-faceted. Many-faceted. There were a lot of sub-layers to that salvific prophecy uh, purpose. In order for Jesus to be the Savior, He had to tell others about Jesus had to be a witness. He had to fulfill prophecy. He had to do all these things. But, but you see, they, they are sub-levels to this ultimate purpose, which was to be the Savior of a people. And when all these sub-levels were accomplished, Jesus said, It's finished. It's finished. And notice what happens. Verse 30. When Jesus therefore received his sour wine, he said it is finished. He bowed his his head and gave up the spirit. Two things I want to note from this verse. First, he bowed his head. He bowed his head. It's a symbol of humility and submission. He submitted himself to the will of God. He sought to bring honor and glory to God through his death. That's what made his death worthy of our salvation. He loved God fully and completely. He obeyed all of the law of God. And the first is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And Jesus did. He bowed his head to the will of God. God, whatever you want is what I will do. And you want me to die. He bowed his head. And then secondly, it says, he gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. This isn't just a euphemistic, nice way of saying he died. It is pointing out the fact that he voluntarily died. Jesus has the power over life and death. John 10, 17. For this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No one has taken it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. Jesus willingly died. In the other accounts it's Mentioned by the fact that his his legs weren't broken. Because that was the usual way in which thieves died. What caused you to die on the cross actually was suffocation. You wouldn't be able to breathe any longer. The reason that if you see the, the... Portrayals of the crucifixion you see the feet are on a, a little bit of a ledge and that is because you would use your feet to, to slightly raise your body in order to be able to breathe. And so they would break the legs of the soldiers when it was time for them to die. And they marveled when they came to Jesus because he was already dead. The reason he was already dead was because he gave up the spirit he chose to die and not live any longer because that was the will of God because he finished the work that God had given him to do and to finally ultimately completely fulfill it he had to die and die he did as we think about this passage there are two applications we can make first We could speak about the importance of finishing the work that God has given us to do. We need to finish the work, and that may sound pretty trivial, pretty trite. I didn't go there. I didn't use this passage to emphasize that. But the reality is, I could have, and it wouldn't have been trivial, and it wouldn't have been trite. Paul says at the end of his life, "I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I've kept the faith." For you see, we all have a responsibility. And in our individual responsibility, it all works out ultimately in the plan and will of God for the salvation of men. It's important that we complete our work, that others come to faith in Jesus Christ. But that's not really where I'm headed this morning. Where I'm headed is this. Our final focus needs to be on Jesus completing the work of our salvation. Jesus completing the work of our salvation. Jesus died, Hebrews says, once for all for the remission of sins. It's done. There is nothing left for us to do in order for us to be saved. It's simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and He'll be saved. Nothing you have to add to it. No other work that has to be accomplished, no other length that you have to go to. Jesus did it all. It's finished. So my thought is simply this twofold. First, rejoice in him, be thankful. If new if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Saviour, you should go away with a heart that is free that is just rejoicing and thankful for all that God has done for you because your sins are forgiven. Not that they can be forgiven. They are forgiven. It's done. They're removed as far as the east is from the west. If you are a child of God this morning, you are saved. Not that you will be saved. You are saved. And there is not a thing for you to do but thank God for the salvation that you enjoy. Rejoice in your salvation. Give thanks to Jesus Christ who completed the work. He's not still on the cross, it's done. In communion, we are not offering his body and his blood for you again. For it is done. It is finished. And the second thought I have for you this morning is, if you haven't yet believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, put your faith and trust in him. For he is the only way of salvation. And he has made it possible for you to be saved by placing faith and trust in him. If you will only believe. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I picked the hymns with a lot of forethought. And uh, I want to start out with hymn number 155 because it said a lot to me. But I don't know if it said a lot to you. And so, if I may, I want to change and sing 155 again. Not that the closing hymn isn't meaningful. But it reaches a climax. In verse 4, when it says, "Lifted up, was he to die, it is finished, was his cry. When I picked this hymn, I had all these thoughts in my mind. I'd like us to sing this hymn again. With all these thoughts in our mind, that we might really hit the climax, it is finished, was his cry. Hymn number 155, please, stand with me as we sing.